Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So at the end of the day, she gives us a police department that's been significantly degraded, a school system that has lost an 11 percent student population since she came in and that was closed for 15 months because she caved to the teachers union with devastating consequences and a cta that has is still down 500,000 riders a day since she came into office and of course virtually nothing but a few one-off projects on the south and west sides most of the most of the projects the southwest side projects have actually that have actually gotten out the door have been Rahm Emanuel's projects. Hi everybody, I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is former Chicago Public School CEO Paul Vallis, one of nine people running for mayor of Chicago. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Fran. Since we last talked on this show, you have had a life-changing event. Your very first grandchild was born. What's your name? What's that like? Tell me, I have not had the joy in my life. Well, well, I I wish that you uh, experienced that great joy, in, uh, you know, sooner rather than later. But uh, uh, it's a boy. Uh, his name is Costandinos, which is my father's name. Of course, Costa for short. And of course, he's the he's the son of of my. Uh, my middle boy, Gus, who's a, who's a tactical officer in San Antonio, and his beautiful wife, Leslie. And uh, it, it, he rolled over at 14 days, if you could believe it. So that means he's an Einstein. He's, he's got to be. It, it was amazing just watching him, trying to figure out how to get on his back. He, he sent me the picture. It's just, it's just uh, we're ecstatic. And, uh, uh, and, and my wife, Sharon, went out there with my 93-year-old mother, to spend a week out there cooking and, you know, looking after everyone and, of course, playing with the three dogs because they have these three beautiful little dogs. And uh, it was just a, it was just an absolute joy. My mother, as you know, fell and broke her hip in, in three places. She just had surgery and now she's in rehab. And she has informed all of us that she's not planning on leaving anytime soon now that she has her fourth grandchild. So she's in really good spirits. And after... I think after having spent a week with uh, her fourth great grandchild, uh, she's just euphoric and she's as excited as we are. What is the Greek word for grandpa? It's papui or papu. And is that what he's going to call you? Is it a is it a boy? It's a boy, and uh, the the Greek word for grandmother is yaya. So my my wife's a yaya, and I'm a papui. Um, now of course my wife is Dutch, so that would make her an oma. So, uh, but it's great. It's, uh, 
it's a real joy. First one, I, I thought it was going to have to wait forever, but um, it's, uh, it's just a precious thing. And it's, a, it's, you know, it's, it's really, uh, we're just euphoric about it. Four years ago, you lost your son tragically. Yet this is another example, Paul, of the circle of life, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it, it is. And, you know, it's been a struggle. It, 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 I think my wife has struggled more than me because I've been able to immerse myself in other things. Uh, and, uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, it has really, it's really been a boost, obviously, to both of us. But, but my, my wife in particular being out there, and it's just really, it, it's brought a lot of joy uh, into the family. Uh, and, uh, and I know my, my, uh, my two boys miss, miss my youngest son, Mark, who passed away. And, you know, it, it's certainly you know, it's certainly been a joy for them too. So it's, you're right. It's, it's the circle of life is the most amazing thing. Third quarter fundraising reports filed this week on campaign fundraising show that you have flexed a little muscle that we haven't seen much from you before. Most of it after the September 30th deadline, your campaign now claims to have $1.63 million in the bank after a significant spike in contributions totaling 782000 and counting after the deadline, you raised only 153000 in the third quarter, spent all but 1800 of it. But since then, you have now built your campaign up to $1.6 million. You've been raising money from Republican business people like executives of Madison Dearborn Partners and Ken Griffin's Citadel. The Lightfoot campaign says it plans to hit the airwaves right after the midterms to help Chicagoans get to know, and this is a quote, more about the Republican opponents that we're running against, whether it's Paul Vallis or Willie Wilson. They want to drive what they call a strong contrast between the mayor's accomplishments, as they put it, and some of the, quote, extreme Republican positions of our opponents. You know that that is the pin the tail on the donkey label that they're going to try and saddle you with. What is your response? Well, well you know, first of all, let me let me update you on my fundraising numbers. We're actually at, as of today at one point eight two million and we'll probably be over two million. I would say by the end of the month. So the fundraising continues to come in. Many of those fundraisers, as you know, from Madison, Dearborn Partners, or for that matter, uh, Mike Kaiser, who's the, the chairman of my campaign, they've they've contributed to Democrats for years. Madison Dearborn has, has been a big supporter of Democrats, as you well know, a big supporter of Bill Daly, as well as Rich Daly, a supporter of Ron Emanuel. Uh, obviously, Whitefoot herself has received, She's first of all, she's worked for law firms. She's worked for law firms who have done work on the Republican remap. She's gotten contributions from Republicans. So, you know, that's the only thing she's going to be able to do. She's going to try to play cards. She'll play play the race card, the equity card, the Republican card. That's because she has nothing to offer. Crime is out of control in the city. She continues to lie about the crime statistics, particularly just most recently, the CTA. Uh, the sometimes or the trains uh, um, uh, a uh, story by Cranes <clears throat> just last week talked about how they haven't had one project come out of her vaunted, much publicized uh, Southwest initiative. Uh, and, and of course, most recently, uh, Heather Sharon did a story about how they, you know, how they keep on reappropriating the same COVID money 
for progressive initiatives that they don't seem to follow through on. So at the end of the day, she, she gives us a, a police department in, that's been significantly degraded, uh, a school system that has lost an 11 percent student population since she came in. And that was closed for 15 months because she caved to the teachers union with devastating consequences. And a CTA that has, is still down 500,000 riders a day since she came into office. And of course, virtually nothing but a few one-off projects on the south and west sides. Most of the, most of the projects, the southwest side projects have actually, that have actually gotten out the door have been Rahm Emanuel's projects. So, at, so she doesn't have a record. So she's going to have to resort to labeling. You know, my record is pretty clear. You know, having, uh, I was Pat Quinn's running mate and, and of course running, uh, running against Robert Gorevich in the Democratic primary. And of course, you know, my record working for the Obama administration in the Department of the Interior on revamping education on the Indian reservations or for Sally Yates uh, when she was deputy uh, U.S. Attorney General on prison, on prison education, occupational training reform. I mean, my record is pretty well established. So she's going to have to resort. She's going to have to resort to labeling or calling people names because she has just an abysmal record. Well, you'll have to have money to combat that, though. Of course. And I plan on having money. And look, $2 million, I anticipate that, that I'm going to have a lot more than that. I mean, there are a lot of funders that are waiting to see uh, who who enters the race. You know, who? Uh, what's the final scorecard going to look like in terms of the number of people that are on the card? And I think that uh, some people are holding back. There's been stories about how difficult uh, a lot of the candidates are are having raising money including the mayor you remember what Rahm Emanuel had right I know no I know her her fundraising has been less than uh than uh eyebrow raising in the sense that she raised a million dollars in the third quarter she has 2.9 the thing that she's got going for her is that no one else is doing so hot either except Willie Wilson who keeps dipping into his own pocket you're starting to show a little life in your fundraising, but uh, what do you think it's going to take for you to combat the labels that not only Lightfoot is going to put on you, but also the Chicago Teachers Union is going to put on you? Well, look, you know, I think what's uh, what it's going to take is having the money to get my message out. And I anticipate that I will have plenty of money to do that. I think after after the November uh, uh, petitions are in after we know who's on the ballot, I anticipate a significant increase in my fundraising. And uh, again, the, my fundraising certainly appears to be picking up. So I'll have more than enough money to combat, to, to do two things. First of all, to articulate my, my vision. And as you know, I've been extremely, I've been very specific on everything from how to bring, how to ensure that all neighborhoods are safe and secure. Uh, obviously, my record on on schools is well documented. I've my uh, my uh, initiative to redevelop the south and west sides. My uh, you know my uh, you know my strategies for stabilizing city finances and stopping the the spend and waste cycle that has been characteristic of just not with this mayor but past mayors. I you know I'll have the money to get my message out and and I'll also have the money to combat uh, their attempts to to uh, define me because 
I have a record, unlike many of the candidates, I have a record of opening schools on the south and west side, of doing record minority and woman-owned business set-asides. I have a record for uh, expanding after-school and summer school programs. I have a record of putting uh, police on every police beat back in the 1990s when I was city budget director, and we initiated the uh, community policing uh, uh, strategy that literally cut the murder rate in half. So I The teachers union, though, Paul, is a dedicated enemy of yours. They say you favor privatization of public education because you favor vouchers. They say you close schools as CEO. You say they are to blame for the devastating loss of educational ground that students suffered right. during the pandemic because the union insisted on keeping schools closed and Mayor Lori Lightfoot went along with it. You say the unprecedented spike in violent crime and carjackings is a direct result of it. How do you plan to combat the CTU label, which will be emphasized when Brandon Johnson, a CTU organizer, gets in? Well, you know, first of all, I welcome having a debate with CTU leadership. Debbie Lynch, who was the former president of CTU, is also one of the individuals who are who are, have joined my campaign and they're going to support me and she's going to endorse me as she did four years ago. So, you know, I'm going to appeal to the individual teachers because at the end of the day, the CTU has, the current CTU leadership has wrecked havoc on this city. Let me point out that closing schools for 15 months has had a devastating consequence uh, on uh, on uh, families, particularly, uh, particularly low-income families, overwhelmingly Black and Latino families. Think about it for a second. First, the test scores that were already abysmal before COVID have have now plummeted further. Only one in 10 black students in the Chicago Public Schools are meeting state standards, yet the district is graduating students at an 84% rate. Look at the violent crime, keeping schools open, uh, closed for 15 months, and then, and then not providing the type of recovery programs, the longer school days, the longer school years, keeping schools, campuses open to keep the kids off the street and to keep the kids engaged and, uh, you know, to help the kids not only make up for lost instructional time, but to ensure that kids were in a safe, secure area. There have been two, um, there have been close to now 200 uh, uh, school-aged uh, student, uh, young people who have been murdered in the city of Chicago since COVID began. And if you look at a a study that was done by the University of Chicago Crime Lab last year, they reported that 8% of the murders, 9% of the shootings, 32% of the robberies, almost 50% of the carjackings were performed, were committed uh, 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 by individuals who were 17 years and younger. So believe me when I say the, the union driven, the union forced, uh, uh, the union forcing the schools to remain closed for 15 months and then impeding the, the administration's ability to use the COVID money effectively to make up for lost instructional time has had devastating consequences. So I'll be more than happy to have the debate on, on what, the, uh, what the present teacher union leadership has done to devastate the Chicago public schools and to, in effect, uh, you know, inflict the type of devastation that has that has that has had its most serious impact on on poor communities, particularly communities of color. You talk a lot about the exodus of students. How would you reverse it? Well, I would do a number of things. The first thing I would do is really 
turn the schools back, uh, you know, return the, the schools to the community school concept. That schools that are open through the dinner hour, over the weekends, on the holidays, through the summer, bring community-based organizations into the schools so that there are an array of activities, supportive acti activities for the students. If the students are in need of additional instructional help or tutoring, if the students are in need of enrichment, sports and recreation, the whole idea is to, to transform these schools into, into open campuses that can provide an array of services. In the Rosen community, for example, Michigan Avenue, there's nothing for these kids to do on Michigan Avenue. Virtually nothing. The stores are vacant. There's no uh, food pantries. There's no recreational space. But yet, Gwendolyn Brooks, uh, the 40-acre mega campus, which I opened and I built, one of, incidentally, 78 schools, 78 schools that I, uh, are, are school campuses that I built new buildings on. At 4.30, that campus is shut down. On the weekends, it's shut down. Over the, you know, it, it was only open, I think, over only six weeks during the summer. On holidays, that campus was shut down. Yet that campus with its gyms and its recreational facilities and its auditoriums, et cetera, could be a place where the kids could go, where the kids could be in a safe, secure environment. So what I would do is I would open the campuses. The second thing I would do is extend the school day and extend the school year. That's the only way you can make up for lost instructional time. And the, the billions that were providing, provided to the schools for COVID, the U.S. Department of Education specifically said that a portion of that money should be used to lengthen the school day and lengthen the school year to make up for lost instructional time. Have they done any of that? Absolutely not. The third thing I would do is in the high schools is I would get every city agency and every single, every city department and every city contractor, for that matter, developer who was subsidized by the cities, and I would have them create work-study jobs, paid work-study jobs that the school district could subsidize to by, in effect, by, in effect, phasing out non-essential courses and non-essential electives and using that money to get these high school kids into paid work study jobs, paid work study opportunities, introduce children to the real work world, put children in a safe, secure environment, getting young people surrounded by the best role models in the community. And that's working men and women, the Crystal Ray model. So those three things alone, Fran, I think would uh, be a dynamic that would help uh, not only keep kids from leaving the school system or dropping out or transferring to other districts, but I believe that those type of things will make the school system attractive again. Uh, for the mayor's budget includes a $395 million TIF surplus. That's the largest in city history. Uh, $218 million for the schools. What does that tell you? Because at the same time that she is de uh, declaring this record TIF surplus, she has also been offloading security and pension costs to CPS to balance her own budgets. And that TIF surplus doesn't make up for it. In 2025, for example, CPS is facing a huge spike in pension payments to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars the same year that the $2.8 billion in federal stimulus funds will dry up, the same year that a moratorium on school closings expires, and the same year that the elected school board that Lightfoot fought tooth and nail after favoring it during the campaign, but the General Assembly forced it on her, the same time that that board is seated. Isn't the elected school board set up for a fall? Well, you know, in honesty, I don't think so. Look, I mean, um, 
Does he lack a strategy, a comprehensive strategy when it comes to long-term budget planning? Absolutely. Does he kind of like uh, rob Peter to pay Paul? Absolutely. Look, I mean, these recent stories about her kind of uh, having the same press releases and and putting out uh, new initiatives to spend COVID money that she had actually uh, had appropriated to spend the previous year. I mean, you know, both the city and the school budgets have become like, in effect, big cash flow accounts for the mayor. So th- there is a, a high level of incompetency when it comes to their budget management and their overall financial planning strategy. But the bottom line is this, we are spending almost $30,000 per pupil. And that's not with all the COVID money expended. I think there's still close to about a billion dollars in unexpended COVID money. And the school district has lost 11% population, 11% population since 2019, but yet the per pupil funding level has grown by 40%. Uh, the schools do not have a revenue problem. The schools have a budget priority problem. Let me also point out that close to 60, only, only about 60% of the money that goes to the schools actually finds its way into classroom instruction. So there needs to be a very, very serious assessment of how the schools are spending their money, how much money is being skimmed off by the central office. There are, there are serious financial accountability issues that need to be addressed. And that would be, that will be one of my, one of my top orders of, uh, of school business. Let me point out that in, in 95, when the schools were in financial crisis, uh, we were able to go in, close a billion dollar, a multi-year projected structural deficit and we were able to relieve the, relieve the district with a billion dollars in cash balances. At the same time, we didn't close a single school, and I raised teachers' salaries by almost 20%. So, but when how- the moratorium is over, won't you close schools? I mean, you've got schools that are half empty, more than half empty, scores of them. Well, I think what you have to do with schools are, are the following things. Um, first of all, you have to repurpose some of these buildings and you have to do it with community input. So, so these are the things that I would do with these vacant buildings. Uh, the, the first thing I would do is I would. I'm not talking about five. vacant buildings. I'm talking about half empty buildings. Well, so more than half about, empty. well, when I say vacant, I'm talking about almost vacant. Okay. Buildings. Right. okay. So, so Fran, you have over a hundred charter schools in this city and 96% of the charter schools serve black and Latino children, okay, overwhelmingly. These are schools of choice. In fact, in some cases, the only schools of choice. Many, the, as you know, the school district has been barred uh, from sharing any of their buildings or offering any of those buildings to the, those schools. And yet those schools, incidentally, one-fourth of the kids in the Chicago public schools go to charter schools. And, and you know, for public information, charter schools are not-for-profit public schools. They, they just don't have union representation. So at the end of the day, these are not private schools. Sorry, Chicago Teachers Union, uh, but that's the truth. So, but the point is you could easily, many of those schools, the, the majority of those schools are in substandard buildings. Why could you not invite the charter schools to share those half empty or 70 or 80 or 90% empty buildings? Why couldn't you invite, why couldn't you invite, uh, uh, you know, uh, charter schools that that are serving the same community to occupy those vacant buildings or share those buildings. I mean, they're educating local public school children. So so that would be one thing that you could do. The second thing that I would do is there is a need to open adult and occupational training centers 
for these uh, for individuals who have dropped out of school, those previously incarcerated. There's a huge population of young people aged 18 to 25 that do not have the qualifications to get into community college. They're dropouts. Some of them have been in some phase of the criminal justice system. There's no reason why the city cannot convert a number of those half-empty or 80% empty buildings to adult dead and occupational training centers. That would be another way to utilize those buildings. And the third thing I think you have to do with some of those buildings, particularly buildings that are almost all empty, is to sit down with the community and to figure out how those buildings can be repurposed. There's no reason why some of those buildings and campuses couldn't be reopened as business incubators. So so inviting charter schools or even private and parochial schools that are willing to enroll kids uh, from the community on scholarship, uh, inviting them to occupy, to share those buildings, or in some cases just to occupy those, fully occupy those buildings will be one way uh, of serving the community uh, opening adult debt occupational training programs that are subsidized. The state actually allows for the opening of their called adult high schools. They are these type of schools, and, and the funding for these schools uh, is included in the school aid formula. Why they haven't opened one of these schools or expanded the alternative schools network uh, and allowed these alternative schools uh, uh, to occupy these buildings is beyond me. And then, of course, turning some of these campuses into business incubators, that would be a way of occupying these buildings to the benefit of the community. Mayor Lightfoot and Superintendent Brown have been highlighting the nearly 20% drop in homicides and shootings over the same period last year, but it's still way up, some 30% up since 2019 when Lightfoot took office. You say this is all cold comfort to Chicagoans who wake up seemingly every morning to reports of more violent crime. Three or four attempted kidnappings near Wrigley Field this week, three murders this week alone in Westridge on the far north side, including a convenience store owner near retirement, scores of crimes on the south and west sides, crime on the CTA, trains and buses. What do you think it's going to take to, as you put it, restore proactive and effective policing and stop the exodus of police officers with nearly a thousand retiring just this year, more to come and the city can't keep pace with it? Well, I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty confident that I can restore, uh, uh, confidence in the police department and slow the exodus of officers by doing the following things. The first thing is you have to fire Brown and his leadership team, and you have to promote from within. And there are officers from within who can assume positions of responsibility that will have the confidence of the rank and file. Secondly, you've got to return. You've got to return to Beck strategy, interim superintendent Beck strategy of community policing, pushing those officers down to the local beats, because in some of the most violent districts, Maybe half the beats don't have cars covering them. The third thing you have to do is you have to get the police on a predictable, uh, consistent schedule. So these arbitrary, uh, arbitrary cancel, uh, cancellation of days off or extending the the, uh, the the shifts by four hours, it's having a devastating impact on families. And the fourth thing you have to do is you have to restore proactive policing. And by restoring proactive policing, I'm not talking about stop and frisk, which the city incidentally never has, or for that matter, mass incarceration. I'm talking about simply arresting people for violating the public way, for destroying public property, for going in and stealing and robbing. I, I'm just talking about enforcing the law. And if you do those four things, I believe that a couple of things will happen. The first thing that will happen is it'll slow the exodus of police officers. 
uh, from from the uh, district. And the second thing that it will do is make being a Chicago police officer more attractive again. I remember when my son returned from Afghanistan, you know, despite the fact that that, uh, you know, he had a distinguished military career, he wasn't even able to get into the lottery to take the police exam. Now they're literally recruiting people at the airport, you know, basically going door to door trying to get people to take the exam. They've got drive through. It's like drive through exam taking. So I think those four things I think would make a difference. I don't think what the city has to do is the city has to stop complaining about Kim Fox and and wait until the uh, next election and get her out of office. But in the meantime, there's ways to bypass Kim Fox. You know, she criticizes Kim, Kim Fox uh, in private, but then she goes to public events and praises her, but yet she does nothing to bypass her. What do I mean by bypassing her? First of all, by strengthening your working relationship with the federal government so that with the U.S. Attorney's Office, so you're bringing more cases under federal prosecution. Second, it's actually bypassing her when she refuses to charge and going to judges to get them to charge. Third is the city can pass its own public safety ordinance. In other words, the city is a home rule. Uh, has the home rule authority to pass its own public safety ordinance and the city itself can go in and do its own prosecutions if it elects to do so. And then the fourth thing that the city can do. You're talking about administratively. Yeah. Well, the city can do that administratively, but the point is there are ways, there are ways to bypass her and in the process, put pressure on both her and the judges to be more responsible. And then the fourth thing is to create a case review unit. That case review unit would review all decisions made by her, all decisions made by the judges, and and uh, and use that information to provide full transparency. There's nothing like public pressure on the state's attorney or the judges to be more responsible. So, okay, than- Paul. All right, I'm I'm going to give you a quick lightning round here of things. I know you have to catch a plane. Hearings on the budget are winding down. A few days before the unveiling, Lightfoot pulled the plug on our $42.7 million property tax increase that she had already cut in half of what it would have would have been allowed by the inflation trigger. Uh, she did this because she didn't have the votes. Were you impressed with that? And no, you know, I, I think this is all part of the setup. I think she always planned to pull it and to pretend that she was acting irresponsibly uh, and to give the council something. Let me point out that since she's been in office, property taxes in Chicago have gone up $877 million, both the combination of schools and her school board raising property taxes just this year alone, $310 million. So I'm not impressed. And then, of course, her raising city taxes. And as you, I think, pointed out earlier, that when there is additional, when when money, more money is diverted to TIFs, the property taxes go up. The property taxes go up because the tax rates rise to give the schools and the city what they lost in TIF diversions. And, and you know, she could have easily taken that $400 million and she could have easily provided tax relief since that $400 million is a product of higher taxation. When TIFs, when you expand TIFs, you in fact increase taxes on Chicago residents. So at the end of the day, I'm not impressed. Uh, what about um, the Red Line South TIF, the Rob Peter to pay Paul concept? The aldermen are balking at it. They're not happy with Dorville Carter, who won't even come before the council. What do you think? Well, look, look, you know, you need you need to get the red line done, and and using TIFs. 
and using TIFs to finance the red line and using TIFs to raise the money to provide the match, as Rahm Emanuel attempted to do, is not unsound. But the problem with the CTA goes far beyond the red line TIF. The problem with the CTA is 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 a loss of, I mean, it's crime on the CTA. I mean, they're spending $100 million with private security um, and, and, what, and what, 300 private security guards and 50 dogs. The private security is untrained. They're unarmed. Uh, they're very low paid. Uh, meanwhile, a CTA crime uh, per capita is at record levels. It's the highest crime since 2011. And on a per capita basis, it's the highest crime ever. You know, there's been 30 CWB uh, reported that there's been I think 31 murder, no, 33 murders on the CTA in the last 10 years, and eight of those murders was this year alone. So at the end of the day, uh, I think people are frustrated and angry because not only do you have escalating crime on the CTA, but the CTA is dirty, the CTA maintenance is substandard, they've had an abysmal time filling vacancies in part because people, I think, are afraid to not only ride the CTA, but also to, to, uh, to work at the CTA. And I think and I think that's hurting, that's undermining her efforts to get their support for uh, doing, using TIFs to, to address the need to complete the red line. Uh, her Hail Mary plan to put a $2 billion dome over Soldier Field in order to keep the bears from moving to Arlington Heights. Well, the bears are gone. The bears are gone never to return. So uh, the bears, uh, you know, Arlington Heights is a gold mine for them. I mean, she had an opportunity to negotiate with them. You know, you can't just wait until they've already made a decision to leave, until they've already purchased the property, until they, uh, they've already made the investment, and then suddenly run to the rescue and to say we're going to put a dome on Soldier's Field. At the end of the day, I, I just think it's uh, it's too little too late, but, but that is typical of her approach. And then, of course, to negotiate with the bears, uh, in the media. So the Bears, the Bears are, you know, if you want to go to the Bears game, you're going to be traveling to Arlington to see them. McDonald CEO who, who dared to criticize crime and she put him down by saying he should educate himself. What did that tell you? Well, you know, she, she does that to everybody. Well, she did that to me when I called her out or when I, I thought constructively pointed out two years ago that the city wasn't financially ready for, for COVID and the potential financial impact. I think her tendency is to respond to critics by attacking them rather than to say, well, that's a good point. Or I'd like to sit down and, 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 and uh, spend time, uh, you know, updating him, uh, updating the CEO of our efforts and soliciting, soliciting his ideas and his thoughts on how we can do things better. I think that would have been, uh, a much more constructive approach. I think people would have responded to that positively. positively. And finally, the $242 million pension prepayment plan in her budget. Well, you know, I think what she's doing is she's 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 uh, paying $240 million this year. So next year, she'll put $240 million less. Let me point out that a number of the pensions, uh, one of the pension funds in particular, uh, uh, came to me and he told me that they were basically have, going to have to uh, going to have to jettison assets because in effect you know the uh, you know because of the underfunding and because uh, because they they didn't have they didn't have enough money to to uh, you know to pay their uh, their retirees and and I so she had to put money in to prevent them from doing that I think with her it's just a shell game. Uh, you know, you put $240 million in additional money, of what she claims to be additional money, or she claims to be more money than she's supposed to be, uh, she's supposed to put in. 
the, the idea is if you put the money up front, you're going to have to put in less later. But what's the preventer from just putting $240 million less next year? So I think it's a shell game. Like everything about her budget, uh, it's a shell game. The spending of COVID money uh, or the, the re, you know, the spending of COVID money uh, in this year's budget that she should have spent last year, you know, the shell game that uh, with the uh, uh, South West, uh, her, 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 her Southwest initiatives where, you know, she's, she's constantly putting, grandiose numbers out about what she's dedicating to those projects. But yet the, the cranes pointing out that she doesn't have a single project out the door. I think everything's a shell game. Everything's a PR game. All right, Paul, I don't want you to miss your plane. Uh, we will talk again. We could talk forever about all these issues and we will see you all next week. Thanks, Fran. 